Welcome to a place of wellness and healing for both your body and mind. Get ready to live a happy, healthy, energized life that totally rocks. You're listening to Straight Talking Natural Health, a no BS podcast for busy women who want to ditch the fatigue, find balance and feel great with your host and naturopath, Jules Galloway. This episode is brought to you by the 2022 Activated Probiotics Symposium, Women in the New World, in partnership with Tammy Guest. The 2022 Activated Probiotics Symposium is gathering powerhouse female leaders in the complementary and integrative healthcare industry to help practitioners explore the newest research in women's health and inspire ways to upgrade your mindset and business skills in this new world. From the 14th to the 18th of October, the beautiful Hobart, Tasmania will play host to this amazing weekend of healthcare practitioner education, networking, and adventure. Over the weekend, you'll hear from 10-plus expert speakers, including Leah Heckman, Moira Bradfield, Kira Sutherland, Carla Wren, and me. Woo! Come along for a weekend of practitioner education, networking, and adventure. Secure your spot today by visiting activatedprobiotics.com.au. Today's guest has become a leader in her field of all things fertility, reproductive health, and IVF support. I'm actually really excited to watch her go from strength to strength because we actually went to college together 20 years ago. 20 years. Oh my God. I was counting last night. I couldn't believe it. Yep. She's a naturopath and she had one of the brightest minds in our year level. Pretty sure she shat all over me in biochemistry. She's gone on to become a clinician and also a speaker and an author in her niche. So I thought she'd be the perfect person to speak to today about navigating reproductive health in a post-pandemic world. Please welcome to the show, the very lovely Rhiannon Hardingham. Thanks, Jules. It is so nice to be here. And as you said, it's uh, so exciting and bizarre that it's been about 20 years since we studied together. But it's so nice to still be in touch. I really do think you shat all over me in biochemistry. (laughs) That was, I did laugh when you said that because it was the uh, only class that I did well in though. Other than that, I was pretty (laughs) lackadaisical about the uh, seriousness of study. Never mind. (laughs) We learned a lot since then, haven't we? Exactly. (laughs) So tell me, you've been obviously out of college for about 16 years. So how did you end up in the area of fertility? Like, did you choose this niche or did the niche choose you? Definitely chose me, which is, uh, I think, a fairly common story, actually. A lot of the trackies that I mentor talk about uh, not intending to end up in fertility, but uh, finding, like I did, that when you start off with a focus on women's reproductive health, then you pretty quickly end up seeing women who want to make babies. Yep. It happens. And I guess like we were just that prime age as well, because I think often as clinicians, we, as, especially when starting out, we attract people who are kind of our same sort of age set. Mm-hmm. And and that was prime baby making age when we were turfed out of yes. college. Yes. Well, that's right. And maybe even, I think I was 27 when I started practicing. So, you know, maybe a little bit Maybe I got those first couple of years in of just focusing on hormonal health and then, you know, certainly by the time me and my patients were 30, it really turned to babies pretty quickly. (laughs) And then like any good fertility practitioner, then it goes into IVF support, doesn't it? 
Yes, indeed. Again, as I, uh, as the mentees that I, the prakis, the, the praks that I mentor tell me often, and as I actually also often say, you, you're just so likely to end up seeing IVF in everyday practice these days because the referral strategies uh, at a conventional level have uh, become slimmer and slimmer over the last couple of decades. So it doesn't take long now for patients to um, have not had uh, success with conception before they find themselves in the office of a fertility specialist, which actually is invariably an IVF doctor. Yeah. And you're mm. you're pretty good at working alongside doctors as well, aren't you? You're you're one of my favorite types of naturopaths, which is the open-minded, happy to work alongside the doctor naturopath. What's that like doing that? Has that changed over the last sort of 10 years or so? It is certainly getting uh, broad. We're getting broader and broader acceptance uh, over the years. Myself and the practitioners that I work with have worked really tirelessly to bridge that gap uh, by going to the medical conferences. I was lucky enough to be invited to present at the uh, Medical Fertility Society of Australia conference in 2019 um, by obviously letter writing and be, being really uh, clear in our communication with specialists about the work that we're doing with their patients, our res respect and regard for the work that they do, a clear um a clear acknowledgement of our boundaries uh, and also a real emphasis on those things that we can do to benefit patients that they may not clinically be that inclined to uh, adopt, which is, you know, working on the, the weight loss for specific patients or working on the in, impact of uh, environmental chemicals, et cetera. Clinically, for, for specialists, there's not a lot of time for them to spend on that work, but it is all now really uh, evidence-based uh, recommendations for fertility patients. I think also, like, I've noticed in, in even areas of my practice as well, like, things have changed a lot in the last 10 or so years because more evidence has become available on certain yeah. topics. And as soon as yeah. there's evidence, then the GPs are comfortable to refer to us. Yeah, that's right. I think our profession has really uh, changed significantly just in that time since we've been practising, hasn't it? From a, a, a mainstreaming perspective, both with uh, conventional doctors, but also there's a really broad spectrum of the Australian population now that embrace naturopathy as a fundamental and sometimes even primary uh, healthcare modality. Yeah, I actually think that this is like the golden era to be a naturopath because we've still it got is. you and I still had all the woo woo training, which is tucked yep. away somewhere in a special little part of my brain. Yep. Um, but then we also <laughs> we're we're right on the edge of like all the scientific stuff that's coming out as well. So it's like I think this is awesome. It is, and we straddle, which you're better at than I am, that we straddle the old and the new regarding promotion and social media. I often laugh, Jules, about how <laughs> we were literally told in force year that one of the key things to uh, get our name out there once we started our own business was to get a listing in the yellow pages. Oh, my God, and to <laughs> make flyers and drop them into letterboxes. <laughs> oh, I did that. God. Oh, glad we all so did glad that. for the younger ones those <laughs> days are over. <laughs> 
in my day, in my day. Surfers, you don't understand. In my day, you, you don't know hard. <laughs> That's right. Now they come out of uni with 5,000 Instagram followers. So, right. You know, <laughs> whole different world. I love it. All right, let's have a chat about what's been going on over the last couple of years because damn, COVID's been a bit of a game changer, I think, for your practice. Absolutely. Yeah. So what sort of let, let's start big and then we'll drill down a bit. But overall, like what effects has the pandemic had on fertility and reproductive health in Australia? Just like the big question to start with. Yeah, yeah, just just yeah. that big umbrella. Just and of course, it out there. it's a, the best place to start, really. Of course, uh, excuse me, I am also in Melbourne. So mm. I have me and uh, the vast majority of my patients are in Melbourne, although I'm telehealth, so I do have patients from all over Australia and some international ones. However, the vast majority of my patients were heavily influenced by lockdowns and restrictions to access to uh, IVF. So certainly circumstantially, physically from an actual health uh, and infection perspective and psychologically there has been a really dramatic impact on the fertility journeys of many of my patients. Mm. And the stress, like as mm. I remember when all when the IVF services got shut down in Victoria, like the the levels of stress that I was seeing in a lot of right. people went up because, you know, when when you're about to do IVF, like everything's pointing towards like a specific go date, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so, of course, for some uh, some individuals, they were uh, just told at the last minute that their cycle would be can- would be cancelled. And other patients, of course, when IVF was open, uh, would get COVID in the middle of a cycle. So they'd be oh, taking God. their drugs and then they'd test positive to COVID and the whole cycle would be cancelled and they'd be mid, literal mid-injection. Uh, so, you know, it was very, very disruptive. However, to be uh, fair and honest, though, the uh, government in Victoria did a lot to prioritise not shutting down IVF. Um, you know, it, of course, received criticism from both sides about the uh, interventions around access to IVF. But overall, to be fair, I think they were fairly measured and we, uh, most of my patients had relatively few interruptions from a um, access perspective. It was more the actual disease. You know, it was more the infection that would be more likely to disrupt their cycles. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So what, what did the stress do to people during that time? Probably uh, still a little bit um, soon to say, honestly. Uh, but you know, for for uh, a lot of Melburnians uh, and for my particular patient group, those trying to conceive, the uh, stress probably has led to a degree of um, PTSD, at least in some individuals, that heightened anxiety about being locked down and uh, also being scared about your health, but on top of that, not knowing whether or not what you felt like your last six-month opportunity to conceive your baby um, uh, was going to be interrupted or not. It's probably 
pretty difficult to really measure how stressful that was, but huge. <laughs> yeah. Huge to say the least. And then there was also the the fear that if you get pregnant, then you might be giving birth without your support team in the hospital as well. Yes, that that's true. And if you get pregnant, that you might get uh, COVID. Um, the uh, I ended up not having any patients who weren't able to give birth with their partners, but plenty who absolutely weren't able to give birth with with a uh, broader support team than just their partners. But it was a very scary window for a lot of them in those last couple of weeks, uh, hoping that them or their partner didn't get COVID because uh, delivering alone and wearing a mask in the hospital is a pretty traumatic concept. Oh, God. Mm. So, yeah, you haven't had a busy couple of years at all, mate. <laughs> it is amazing how uh, not, uh, a little pandemic does not put anyone off wanting to have babies. In fact, it would anecdotally seem as if it, the demands increased significantly. <laughs> yeah, I could say anecdotally where I was living, people just started having babies, like getting pregnant during lockdowns. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Bit of a baby boom where I was living in Byron Bay, actually. Yeah, right. Okay, well, it was uh, national, I guess, even though you guys were hardly locked down. No, no, but still, <laughs> we still had three months of sitting around at home, which is plenty of time for a lot of people to make that's, a baby, that's it would seem. true. Yeah. It is true. <laughs> and, you know, na- national intake of alcohol went up as well. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. There's probably two things that um, we shouldn't talk about the link between. No, <laughs> no, no, no. no. We, won't, we won't be naughty. We don't need All to right. go there. <laughs> All right. And then, of course, like you were in Melbourne and then a lot of people started actually getting COVID as well, whereas mm-hmm. the rest of us in sort of New South Wales and Queensland, we we did lag behind on that front. So we, we went for Omicron over Delta. Um, <laughs> so tell me about the, the effect that COVID has on fertility in general. Mm. Well, it, the, the worst time certainly was that window uh, for us. The worst time was certainly when we had high rates and scrambling vaccination um, availability and status. So, you know, it was, a, it was a very distressing time for patients to either be trying to conceive or have just conceived uh, when they hadn't yet been fully vaccinated. And then there were questions in the early days around the safety of vaccination in pregnancy, which has since been shown to be really super safe the majority of the time, which is a really reassuring um, uh outcome and something that I'm really grateful for because COVID and pregnancy uh, without vaccination can be really devastating. Um, however, uh, that time was was super stressful for those uh, individuals who were not yet vaccinated and, and no one was really able to give them 100% reassurance that vaccination was their best strategy. We're talking like June, July, uh, August last year when we had high numbers and, you know, a very slow vaccine rollout. So it was, it was a really awful time. I remember that was, the, that was the time of the entire pandemic where I thought this is where I would actually delay conception if it was me. Honestly, this is just the worst window. Yeah. 
Yeah, which is awful because a lot of the people who come to you, I know because you're, you know, good at what you do, you're attracting some people who uh, their window of opportunity is really small, right, mm. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's often the uh, the end stage, of course, that we're working with. So there there was no opportunity to to delay conception, but it just meant that there was even more room for anxiety, which is already enough room for in this game. So what do you do when you've got an anxious patient, like really, really anxious patient during something like this with all of these things going on? Um, what can you do for her at that time? Uh, do you mean to, from a reassurance perspective or just from a, an anxiety management perspective? Yeah, from an anxiety management perspective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess uh, it's, for me, it's a lot of uh, herbal and nutritional support, but also that, that circumstantial uh, reassurance as much as possible. I uh, had a uh, lot of uh, immune herbs, as I'm sure you did, go <laughs> out of my practice at, at the time just from a preventative perspective as much as anything. I was just reading this morning, Jules, a little uh, mini review of the human studies on uh, echinacea as a preventative for COVID uh, and Ooh. small studies, but um, but really um, positive. And what we know, of course, about echinacea and viruses in general is that it reduces the um, incidence but also the severity and the same has been shown in small studies with COVID in humans. So that's very reassuring. Yeah. Yeah. Um, My use of that has now been justified. Yeah. (laughs) Good. Keep going. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. But do you mean more specific anxiety interventions or? Yeah, like what what do you do when someone's coming to you and they've got that level of anxiety going on and and they're going into IVF? Well, there's, of course, we're a little bit limited around what we can use after um, transfer from a a herbal perspective, but good use of things like magnesium and taurine are both safe and, you know, certainly effective for that, addressing any sleep issues that they might have uh, and just helping them to navigate both the process and the stress of the circumstance as much as possible. And then after transfer, what can you do to boost people's immune systems? Because that, like, a lot of the herbs that we give are then kind of out the window as well, aren't they? Mm, yeah, they are. So we're lucky that echinacea is safe in pregnancy. Uh, so I still get to use that as my primary uh, intervention along with zinc and vitamin C, ensuring that they have adequate vitamin D, ensuring that their homocysteine is in a safe range to reduce the risk of thrombotic events if they do get uh, COVID and um uh, ensuring that they are doing those basic hygiene strategies as much as possible. Yeah. But we're we're lucky that echinacea is safe in pregnancy, I've got to say, because I think it really makes a world of difference to a lot of my pregnant patients. Yeah, because it's like it's really it is hard to find herbs that tick all the boxes. I know I've come to you before with, you know, with a list of things that I want to do and gone, 
what what can my client take? And you're just like, not that, not that, not that, not that. So, so yeah. yeah, it's it's good. And I mean, echinacea is it does have some adaptogenic properties as well, which we never used to realize. So that's kind of awesome. Like it's going to help with stress as well as with immune systems. Yeah, that's right. It's really such a such an excellent broad spectrum herb. Personally, uh, it's something that I've been taking every day for about <laughs> ten years, I think, and it really, uh, you know, I can really attest to the fact that it significantly reduces uh, rate of infection. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's talk a bit about general women's health so not just IVF um, mm-hmm. because I noticed that and I mean we've all noticed like if everyone has now uh, is now talking about it it seems that cycles get thrown out post COVID infection um, mm-hmm. and also dare I say it post uh, mRNA vaccination as well although right. that was a bit of a like do we go there do we say this on the podcast or not but we're going to do it we're going to we're going to go there um so i'm going to say we've this is what i've seen in clinic and this is what we're seeing in the research now as well is that either infection or vaccination will both throw out menstrual cycles what's going on re yeah, so uh, the the first thing to say is that gratefully for females, uh, both infection and vaccination haven't um, been shown to significantly reduced, reduce uh, conception rates. Uh, so the, um, the, the impact on female fertility is symptomatically really... Uh, obvious for a lot of the individuals that we see. I'd say almost all of the patients that I saw who had uh, the mRNA vaccine had cycle alterations, Uh, but reassuringly they go back to normal uh, within um, one, overwhelmingly with one cycle, sometimes with two, Uh, and the really... uh, uh, broad studies, so really high levels of um, participants show that it uh, doesn't reduce uh, conception rates, importantly. With males, it's a different story. Um, not with the vaccination, luckily, again, doesn't show a reduction in fertility, but COVID infection itself for men can be significantly problematic from a, a reproductive perspective on multiple, uh, in multiple ways. Yeah. Which strains were these studies done on? Like, because, you know, now with Omicron, we're noticing, you know, a milder set of symptoms in a lot of people when they catch it. So is that going to change the data in terms of like what it's doing to male fertility or is it still causing dramas? I think it's probably still causing dramas. The, uh, uh there was one large study that followed over 1.3 uh million participants and in the uh un unvaccinated group over 8000 uh were diagnosed with testicular inflammation and damage and in the vaccinated group only 340 were so it, it's that would have been pre omicron but i think the question around the severity of omicron has a lot to do with the vaccination status of the population and it's probable from what i've read that it's very similar to the original covid strain it's not Delta, gratefully, but uh, but from a severity perspective, 
comparable, I think, to those earlier strains that a lot of this research was done on. So there's still a lot of room for it to cause problems in unvaccinated males and males with other comorbidities who may be vaccinated, such as metabolic issues or obesity or um, low uh, nutrient status. Oh, my God. When you said testicular inflammation, I'm pretty sure all three men that listen to the podcast <laughs> all, all just wins. Hi, 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 three blokes out there. I know you're listening. Um, oh, God. Um, and so then the the resulting uh, impact on sperm count, what happens yes. there? Yeah, sperm count and quality is reduced. Uh, testosterone is reduced. Oh, wow. uh, and um, the question is around the severity of the uh, issue and whether or not it's transient, which it is for a lot of um, men, the fertility uh, component appears to rebound within two to three months. But there is also a question mark around whether or not some men are actually getting long COVID of the testes, dare we say, uh, oh, and that the vascular damage, because it's such a highly vascular, vascularized area, the testes, uh, that that vascular damage may cause potentially irreversible, we're not sure yet, but certainly in some cases some long-term damage. And clinically I've seen that one of the patients I have uh, who contracted COVID in June 2020, his partner is now using donor sperm for their um, inception. Yeah. This is really serious. Why is no one talking about this? I don't know. (laughs) It's kind of serious. Yes, it's really serious. The researchers are talking about it. Uh, I'm about to... uh, record and put up uh, on my website a uh, education piece for practitioners on it. So uh, I'm talking at ATMS next month about uh, partially about this, about male fertility, but I'll be talking about this. I think that we need to be more aware of this specific uh, impact of COVID and how detrimental it can be for individuals and couples wanting to conceive. What about if kids catch it? Is this going to impact their fertility 20 years down the track? great question that I haven't pondered and I haven't seen any research on it. But what we know, of course, about uh, testicular development is that there are key windows in that pre-pubertal and um, uh, infant time where testicular damage significantly influences their fertility in adulthood. So I would say there's a very high possibility that could have happened. Bloody hell. Yeah. Basically, kids are quite resilient to it, it seems. So. Yeah, yeah, hopefully, mm-hmm. like, yeah, this doesn't impact too many people because it's, it's probably not something people are kind of looking out for right now as parents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, well, that's exactly right, isn't it? Um, Was yeah. it you that posted something on Facebook or social media a little while back that said that, uh, if sperm rates, if sperm count rates keep declining in the way that they're going, like in 30 years from now, like it's going to be really hard for people to make babies at all. Yeah, well, that is the, there was this, the, uh, this really important study published in 2017 that showed that uh, sperm rates had halved in the human male in 40 years. So our sperm count is on a significant decline. Uh, I think it's probably a little bit of an alarmist 
thing to say that, I, so I don't think it was me that said it, and it's an <laughs> alarmist thing to say that in 30 years we'll have trouble uh, conceiving. But what we absolutely will see is what we are already seeing higher and higher uh, individuals in a clinical setting with male factor infertility. It's increasing year on year. Like it's very, very, very clear that our lifestyle and our environment is highly counterproductive for sperm health. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. have you have you seen a shift sort of in the time that you've spent as a fertility practitioner like where you're seeing more couples coming to IVF because the you know the male has issues as well? Yeah, absolutely. And also what is interesting is that even my assessment of what is a reasonable sperm semen analysis result these days has shifted. Like the normal the, the common in clinic has just has changed so much that, for example, with morphology, we used to always really emphasise that we wanted to see a morphology of about 8%, which means 8% normal sperm. Uh, now, anything above four, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, that's pretty fine. Bloody hell. So, so it's, it's very clear. So we've shifted the goalpost just because of the amount yes. of people that have got this going on. Yes, yes. Yes. Yeah. It's, 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 yeah. This Probably. is why I don't love reference ranges. This is why <laughs> yes. reference ranges always get my goat because they shift in regards to just how many head of population fit inside these numbers. Yes. yes. And the interesting thing about the semen analysis reference ranges too are that they're very different to the others that we look at. They're not even purporting to be normal were actually taken from this large study in 2010 uh, that um, assessed conception rates over a 12-month window and they took the lowest fifth percentile as the range. So 95% <laughs> of men whose partners were pregnant in the 12 months prior had better sperm than better sperm parameters than the reference range um, printed on the on the results. But what it is actually intended to be is a guide as to anything under that. It's highly unlikely that you will conceive naturally at all, and it should be an immediate referral to IVF. It's not what's normal. It's what's absolutely unacceptable. Oh my god, <laughs> that's not well understood. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Yeah, I just wonder how how many people don't even end up at specialists because someone's looked at these ranges incorrectly mm. at the beginning. Yeah, many. It's scary. <laughs> it is. <laughs> All right. So let's forget the three men that are listening to this and yep. talk to yep. the we've, females. We've spent a lot of time talking. To them. <laughs> <laughs> no, but what I want to ask is if if you're one of the if you're one of the women who are listening to this who's concerned about their partner, because let's face it, like a lot of us women, we're the instigators of getting the bloke off to the naturopath. Come yeah. on, off you go. Let's go. You have yeah. to go. Um, so <laughs> so if, if you're one of the women listening to this and you are concerned about your partner's fertility and if he's maybe had COVID and you're planning babies, like what, what, can, what can we do? Uh, so a good match perhaps would be my first thing to say. But the second thing would be uh, I do think that it's important for men to get a high-quality semen analysis after a COVID infection if they're trying to conceive uh, and that they also uh, do some 
basics from a supplement perspective or an assessment and then supplement perspective, things like selenium are probably um, uh, probably play a key role in the in restoring testicular function. Uh, zinc uh, also, of course. Yeah, zinc, my, my the, best friend. Absolutely. absolutely. Everybody's best friend, whether they know it or not. <laughs> yeah. and uh and vitamin d of course all of these things are much better used as a prevention rather than a cure because our uh, status in all of those nutrients has been shown to significantly affect the severity of covid uh when you yeah. get it but from a recovery perspective they're also really key yeah i can sit, kind of see how this could definitely play out in couples as well in that like investigations don't usually get done until two people have been trying for a baby for six months sometimes even 12 months sometimes even more so imagine if a bloke has had COVID and then they're trying for a baby it might be six months before they twig that something's going on that's not yeah. right and you could have spent yeah. that six months building up his health yeah. his reproductive health with these like basic things like selenium, zinc, vitamin D, those sorts of things. Yes, exactly. And it is always so disappointing for couples and individuals to find that out. And that's why clinically, uh, I don't care what stage of a fertility journey a couple are in when they come to see me, I will always do a semen analysis ASAP, even if it is just to confirm that he is nothing for us to worry about. Yeah. Now, you did mention the words high quality mm. when you talked about this analysis. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I could tell from your laugh that there must be different types of tests yes. out there and, yes. and roughly ballpark, like what are we looking at cost-wise? For a, a thorough test that includes a DNA fragmentation uh, and Post-COVID infection, if there has been testicular inf uh, inflammation, you, you would also want to do anti-sperm antibodies because they can result from testicular damage uh, and they cause the sperm to clump together so that they are not able to do their job in um, navigating the female reproductive tract and fertilising an egg. Uh, so a semen analysis that includes all of those parameters will cost you out of pocket anywhere between about three and six hundred dollars but the key is ensuring that you're using a laboratory uh, that is a dedicated uh, andrology lab and routinely assesses semen analysis so our main pathology labs that you and I uh, you know, know and use regularly for all of our other tests mm. uh, are actually not in the position to um, reliably carry out these tests. They all offer them, but the um, quality of the results that they publish are highly questionable, sadly. And this is something that's recognised by the World Health Organisation. It's recognised uh, uh, as a international stumbling point for male fertility is the poor quality of assessment uh, offered by many laboratories. So probably the easiest way to judge the quality of a uh, andrology lab is just to choose to use one that's associated with an IVF clinic um, yeah. while, rather than just one of your standard pathology labs. 
Yeah. And does that mean you really need to go to like a, a specialist, like would, would a GP not know where to send someone and, and even like a specialist naturopath because like would a regular naturopath know where to send someone? Yeah, probably not. Um, we, uh, you know, certainly I'm lucky enough to have the referrals for a number of good labs on my desktop that I can whip out at any time and directly refer patients to. But uh, obviously you need to be somewhat established in the practice to be in that position and have those relationships with the labs. Yeah. Uh, the generally GPs aren't aware of this. It's fair enough. GPs have a lot to know, and every recommendation by the WHO may not be their strong point on everything. Yeah. Um, but you can take any generic referral to any lab, of course. So even if it's written on a different pathology lab's letterhead, you can take it to um, a, 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 an andology lab associated with an IVF clinic. You don't have to be a patient of that IVF clinic to use their lab. That's good to know. Yeah. Yes. That's dead handy. Yes. All right. Indeed. But it, it sounds like, I mean, you know what blokes are like as well? You can kind of usually only get them to front up once for something before yeah. they kind of go, no, nah, I've seen a doctor, I'm not going again. So I think you know, my, I, from where I'm sitting, I'm just thinking if someone's worried, go and see the right naturopath or the right yeah. specialist, get it done yeah. once, get it done yeah. right because right. With, with some blokes, not all blokes, but yeah. some blokes, <laughs> you've really only got like, you know, a small window of opportunity before they kind of tap out with these sorts yeah. of things. And unfortunately, I mean, I have an example right at the top of my mind just from last week, uh, but I see it very often. Uh, unfortunately, often men are told too early in the game without sufficient evidence that they're not the problem and there's nothing uh, to worry about. <laughs> um, largely, often based, of course, on poor quality tests results uh, only then for that couple not for example this couple from last week hadn't conceived after about 18 months and came had came to see me had seen a specialist had seen a GP had seen an, a great acupuncturist but still no one had actually referred him for a proper semen analysis and his semen analysis is uh, absolutely an explanation as to why they would not have conceived in 18 months. In fact, it would be really difficult for them to conceive with his semen the way it is. So, wow. you know, they had been under the illusion that it was her um, oh or that, you know, it was just kind of unexplained when actually it wasn't even vaguely unexplained. It's just male factor infertility, but no one had properly assessed them. I bet you this scenario is not uncommon either. And no, then I just frustratingly oh, routine. And then the amount of stress and pressure that poor woman puts on yep. herself thinking that yep. it's her, like, I just need to eat better and get more acupuncture yep. and go and relax more and yep. it's all me, it's all me. It's my you know, oh, it didn't happen again this month. It's something wrong with me. Oh geez. That's yeah. Poor. Those poor women. Yeah, and this was an example where he was really keen to do anything that he could and hadn't just hadn't had the support from a management perspective. And so, you know, he's des devastated to find this out and annoyed that he could have been doing more for the past 18 months and instead he'd just been incorrectly told that he didn't have to do anything. Yeah. It's pretty and wild. 
also on the flip side of that, how awesome that they found you and that, that yeah. you now have these sorts of tests and, and high-quality tests that we can do yeah. to solve these problems because I just wonder how many of these got missed five years ago, yeah. 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Yeah, many, still many. getting missed. <laughs> many, many must have because they are still, but it is, you know, it means that at the very least um, they will be managed properly from a specialist perspective now if they go back. But before that, we will spend now the next three to six months working on his his side of the story and hopefully be able to get him into a position where his markers move back into the potentially fertile range because there's actually a lot of uh, a lot of components to his health that if changed would very likely improve his fertility. Yeah, what, what else do you do with blokes? I mean, COVID aside, just mm. in general to improve fertility in, in the blokes that you see, like what, what other factors do come into it? So there are uh, a lot of factors that influence male fertility and the important thing to emphasise is, despite everything I've just said, even when a semen analysis looks good, these things will still reduce the chance of a healthy conception. But metabolic health is huge, really underestimated, but very clear in the literature, clinically undeniable. So obesity, the inflammation associated with hyperinsulinemia, uh, unstable blood sugars, of course, are a significant um, compromise uh, to male fertility. Uh, environmental chemical exposure, endocrine-disrupting chemicals as we call them. The research now has zero questions about whether or not that's a disaster for male fertility, so we absolutely know it's a real problem. Uh, you know, 20 years ago when we were at uni being taught, Jules, that it was absolutely <laughs> the case that these things were affecting male and female fertility, th there wasn't uh concrete evidence in the research now it's absolutely concrete uh and there are a lot of nutritional deficiencies of course that can really easily affect male fertility um and easily reverse male infertility if addressed so uh, those that we spoke about before, zinc, vitamin D, selenium, uh, also iodine and thyroid function, folate and B12, methylation uh, as a result of folate and B12 deficiency is a key uh, predictor of male fertility. So there's, there are many, many, uh, many things. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned thyroid function, which is like something that a lot of blokes get missed. Like a lot of mm. a lot of men with with problems with their thyroids can go on for a very long time before being diagnosed because like no one's looking and they don't look like a lot of the women with thyroid issues. Like a lot of my Hashimoto men don't look like a Hashimoto's female. It's yeah, yeah it's odd. They're just it's it we're so used to what we think thyroid issues look like yeah and it's we, so yeah, true isn't it. it it's so true so many women will come to you with a pathology history that includes a basic thyroid assessment and often a more thorough assessment but most men will come with a pathology history that includes cholesterol and mm. that's about it <laughs> <laughs> cholesterol and some mild depression yep <laughs> yes yeah yeah that's right it's uh it's so often overlooked in men you're right i hadn't actually thought of it like that but it's very true i think it's also uh, some of my hashies guys they don't 
gain weight the same way that women do when they get hashies. And so a lot of the time when women come to me and they don't know they've got a thyroid issue but they're about to find out, um, it's, you know, they're like gaining weight too easily and they're really, really tired and sore, whereas men just don't seem to have that same sort of presentation. Yeah, no, it's so true. But the, uh, and I've seen it clinically quite a lot in the research, is really clear on it that you, uh, it's very, very difficult to produce mature, healthy, viable sperm if your thyroid's underactive. Yeah, it's funny mm. about that. It affects Not female reproductive science, health. Actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah, yeah. cell replication. Like it's never, and it's cell replication in the testes is the most significant. Uh, significant example of cell replication in the human body or lifespan Mm. and so it directly affects sperm health and maturity immediately yeah i'm Mm. so glad that like you're starting to pick up that button of the male reproductive stuff and running with it because i honestly don't think it's it's brought up enough in our profession yeah no it's really not and i'm presenting on it a bit at the moment and that is basically how i start every presentation this (laughs) often overlooked uh, uh, component of fertility and both naturopaths and conventional doctors and probably all practitioners are guilty of not addressing it as thoroughly as it needs to be. Far Far too often we are all guilty of that because not all blokes, as you said before, but many can not be particularly willing participants at the start of the process. And so clinically it's really difficult uh, to sometimes, sometimes it's really difficult to uh, manage these patients. And I think even specialists shy away from that um, confrontational clinical uh, experience. Uh, and as a you know, I don't want to stereotype, but as a rule, women are far more likely to take responsibility for fertility issues and, um, you know, carry the burden of that solely. I think in, in health in general, I mean, even when I worked for a multivitamin company, when we were talking about the marketing of said product, the male multivitamin, the marketing was done to the woman. Wow. Right. Amazing. Mm. Mm. Amazing. Yeah, because more female partners would buy them than blokes. Wow. Well, I uh, make a real point of saying to the females that I see if I have the option for patients to book an initial couples or an, an initial individual, of course, and if I'm seeing the female without her male partner, I will uh, emphasise why it's important that he's tested but also emphasise to them that this shouldn't be their problem and it's not healthy for their relationship for them to be in charge of his fertility and uh, that the best thing that she, that the only thing that she needs to do is convince him to book him to see me and then I'll take it from there. Because actually, <laughs> I'll handle him from yes, there. Yes, exactly. I'll take him from there. But uh, actually, overwhelmingly, to be fair, most of them are pretty easy to work with once they, A, realise that you're not that scary because, yeah. you know, a lot, of, a lot of nervousness about it, I guess, behind the what sometimes can look like defensiveness. Um, so once you help them to overcome that anxiety, convince them that it's an evidence-based strategy that you're using that for a lot of them they appreciate then overwhelmingly the response that I get is really good it's just the initial part that's challenging but 
being able to take that out of their relationship stress is, I think, really fundamental. Fertility journeys journeys are problematic enough without uh, the female of the couple being responsible for his compliance. Yeah. Mm. I, I thought the reason that the men don't go willingly at first is because they just assume all naturopaths are going to take them off beer. <laughs> There's a, probably a high. I'm kind of joking. Well, I'm not even joking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> beer and coffee, or then those ones. Then there's those ones who are avid cyclists uh, and oh. absolutely don't want to stop cycling for their fertility. Oh. But anyway, I make deals with them about the window of time in which I expect this of them, and then they're allowed to go back to it. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Hard to, it's my least favourite recommendation. You need to stop the exercise that keeps you physically and mentally well. Mm-hmm. Not, just not just right. so we can get a sample, then you can Exactly, exactly. Oh, dear, those poor yeah. blokes. Yeah. Right. So talk to me if, if, you, if there is a, you know, let's three men who are listening to this aside, if you're a woman listening to this and you are in those reproductive years and you are looking at, at you know, at going down this path, what at what point do you call in a practitioner? Like if the cycles are a bit out following a vaccination or a COVID infection, like would you rush off to the naturopath straight away or would you give it a month or two to sort itself out? Like at what point should people be, you know, picking up the phone and dialing your number? I uh, would say in general, uh, good good basic naturopathic care doesn't have to be specialist naturopathic care, but basic naturopathic care, of course, is beneficial for everybody from a preconception perspective. But that aside, uh, it would be if you found that your your cycles were not recovering. So it it is... um, Especially, I'd say this has been after infection. I've seen some women who have uh, really uh, fragile ovarian functionality, so they might be experiencing premature ovarian uh, decline, or they might be experiencing, which we used to just call premature menopause, um, or actual perimenopause. They may have trouble um, seeing their cycles reestablish normally after after an infection. And that's an excellent time to see your naturopath. The reason is that uh, COVID-19 infections have been shown to alter the, our gonadotrophin expression, so FSH, now LH expression, because of the neural inflammation that occurs, which, of course, we're more familiar with from uh, from a long COVID perspective regarding the uh, uh, poor cognitive function following COVID, the fuzzy brain, trouble concentrating, but it actually also affects the pituitary, which is responsible for telling the ovaries and the testes what to do. So telling the ovaries and the testes to both produce hormones and um, uh, produce and or mature sperm and egg. So that uh, hypothalamic pituitary gonadal access or that uh, conversation between the brain and the ovaries is uh, something that we would really focus on re-establishing for those individuals as much as is possible. Yeah. How long would someone 
like what, what's the cutoff? Like how, how many months of disrupted cycles would you let it go before you go, oh, we need to intervene here? Any more than be- one would be a red flag. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say, no, come on, Jules, we're naturopaths, it's going to be different for everyone. And no, one. No, okay. one, one is enough because because overwhelmingly uh, the majority of the population are recovering within one cycle. So if you're not in that majority, then I would want to get your, if you were my patient, I would want to get your bloods tested and I would want to intervene as soon as we could to help to uh, help you to recover from that neural and uh, localised inflammation that could be affecting your, your reproductive health. Is there anything else that, that COVID affects besides the actual timing, you know, because I've seen lots of periods coming late or not at all or whatever, but is there, are there any other signs that people should look out for in terms of like changes in bleeding or other symptoms? So heavy bleeding and more painful periods are not uncommon for women who have a tendency to that. Uh, and it is simply because there are a high level of the ACE2 receptors uh, uh, in the female reproductive tract. So ACE2 receptors are the uh, avenue on which the SARS um uh, COVID infection a virus enters the cell. So we are susceptible to inflammation and infection. Sorry about that. That was my dog sneezing in the background. <laughs> and now she's yawning loudly, bless. Um, uh, so there's a lot of vulnerability to acute viral infection uh, in that localised area that can cause inflammation and then aggravation of uh, pre-existing tendencies towards menstrual pain or heavy bleeding. Yeah. Yeah, right. So, like, and again, one or two cycles, that's it? Yeah, one or two cycles. It should be no more than two cycles. Two cycles is a stretch, really. It should ideally be no more than one. Yeah, right. You're hard line, lady. (laughs) (laughs) And simply based on the fact that overwhelmingly, as I said, most, I know that most recover really quickly. So if you're not recovering quickly, that's not a a great sign. The sign to do something anyway. Yeah, it's good advice. Like nip it in the bud before it becomes something that your body just, you know, gets used to doing. Yeah. Cool. All right, my love. Thank you so much. Like that's been very enlightening. I didn't realize we were going to go down the path of the male stuff so much, but it was actually it wasn't really our fascinating. plan, was it? No. <laughs> so take my plan. Here's my questions out the window. <laughs> Again, geez, that's pretty much every podcast I do. Um, yeah, but yeah, that's always the better ones. <laughs> they're always the better ones, mate. Um, but look, honestly, thank you so much. Like I really, I, I trust you to to be the person who delivers this information because like I said, you, you are one of the smartest people I know in the industry, but also you're, I know you're down those rabbit holes looking for the data and the information every night. Uh, so thank you so much for the work that you do. Is okay, there... Yeah. Is there someone that some is there a website that we can send people to? Both also, uh, bearing in mind, can you please tell lay people listening, but also practitioners who might want to have a look at your mentoring offerings? So where can they go to connect with you? Yeah, absolutely. So it's uh RhiannonHardingham.com, so just my name, dot com. Uh, and it is a relatively new 
uh, transition in my business, this website. So I am just getting uh, more and more resources up there as we speak, but I do do group mentoring for practitioners and I run masterclasses for practitioners on all things uh, hormones and uh, fertility related uh, and um, I'm launching an IVF support masterclass or relaunching I should say because it's about the sixth time I've done it about every two years I run this masterclass for practitioners supporting patients through IVF so I'm doing that again in August uh, and uh, in the meantime I've got a herb med um hormonal um masterclass a pregnancy support masterclass i'm about to do a little uh window on male fertility uh with covid topically. amazing yeah <laughs> that's awesome and uh also dear listener if you are a practitioner and you like to go to actual seminars or look at mm-hmm. webinars um Marie's often on the speaking circuit as well as we mentioned before so keep an eye out for that thanks Jules. cool thank you so much for spending some time with us today i look forward to i feel like there'll be a part two to this coming in a year or so from now when we can actually look into what else you've found in the research since our chat so yeah uh i have a feeling we'll get you back sometime to look at the next bit we might know we'll be talking about males before we start. <laughs> yeah, and then we'll end up on some other tangent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll only talk about it. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Reed. Thanks, Jules. I hope you enjoyed listening to Straight Talking Natural Health. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Also, head over to my website at julesgalloway.com. There's a free quiz on there to see if you're at risk of burnout. I also have an amazing ebook called Heal Your Adrenals, which is a must for any woman with adrenal dysfunction, aka adrenal fatigue. When I'm not podcasting, I'm seeing clients all over the world via Zoom. I love working with fatigue, thyroid issues, autoimmunity, pyrrole disorder, mold illness, and complex cases, to name just a few. So why not book in and let's work together? All of this and more is available right now over at julesgalloway.com. That's all from me for the time being. I look forward to diving in with you again in the next episode. Bye for now. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.